Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Those were the words of the late co-founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, as he unveiled on January the 9th, 2007, the latest Apple product at the time. He continued, today we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. Woo, everybody went crazy. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. Woo. And the third is a breakthrough internet, internet communications device. Woo. There's a little bit less enthusiasm. As Jobs announced these, you know, the crowd would cheer. But he was trying to build drama, which he eventually made clear when he said... These are not three separate devices. This is one device, and we're calling it iPhone. The applause just echoed throughout the room. Contagious enthusiasm for this newest piece of tech. Some were a little skeptical, though. So at the time, the New York Times described the iPhone as a, quote, gamble, unquote, Shows we can never really predict the future, right? So as of November 2018, over 2 billion iPhones had been sold. The iPhone was, was built and coming out and building on a surge of new technology. And Jobs called it a revolutionary product, something big, something new. And in our passage this morning from the book of Luke, we see Jesus also announcing something big something new, something the likes of which the world had never seen. So, church family, it's great this morning to be back with you in the Gospel of Luke. Remember who Luke is. He is a physician in the first century Palestine who has faithfully heard and and studied reliable reports about the ministry of Jesus Christ and now is seeking to put it all down on paper together in this book called The Gospel Accounts of Luke. He's doing this. He's writing it all all out for a man we find in the first four verses is called Theophilus. Uh, Luke says he's he's writing these 24 chapters for a reason so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. And as we've traced this book through the first five chapters and Lord willing through the next 19 chapters in the years to come, Uh, We, too, have been seeking to know more of the certainty of the gospel, haven't we? The certainty of the gospel we've been taught by the scriptures. The certainty of this person called Jesus Christ. And as we've done so, we've seen the prophecies of his birth. We've seen him enter the world through a virgin named Mary. We've seen him grow up and be baptized by John the Baptist. We've seen him undergo incredible temptation in the wilderness just on the outset of his ministry. And then we've seen him persevere and endure through the temptations of the devil and then begin to preach. And today we come to a passage where Jesus is confronted with a question from the religious folk of the day. So with our time together, let's see two basic truths from the passage Michael just read for us. Two basic things. First, Jesus is the loving bridegroom of his people. Jesus is the loving bridegroom of his people. And second, Jesus brings something new for his people. Jesus brings something new 
for his people. So first, church, Jesus is the loving bridegroom of his people. Let's start right there at the beginning, verse 33. Look there with me if you have your Bible open. So as these people come to Jesus and they say, the disciples of John, meaning John the Baptist, they fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So we have these kind of two cadres of disciples in view here. We have the disciples of John the Baptist, the man who came to prepare the way for Jesus and preach repentance to kind of till up the soil of hardened hearts to be ready to receive the seed of the gospel. And then we have the disciples of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are kind of the religious leaders of the day who kind of keep everybody in check, in line. Both of these disciples, we hear, are are valuing the practice and discipline of fasting. Fasting is the denial of food or, and sometimes water for a set amount of time. In the Old Testament, we saw fasting. We saw fasting uh, for Israel uh, during the Day of Atonement, the day where they received God's forgiveness through sacrifice. That was actually the only time God actually mandated or commanded a regular fast for his people in the Old Testament. But we see them fasting at other times, too, when they're confronted with their sin or when they're in mourning. And now here in Luke chapter 5, we see that fasting has continued to be a mark of the religiously devout up until the days of Jesus. So we know from history that the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays every week. Right. You read Jesus's words where he says, don't, you know, don't fast and then show off that you're fasting by looking haggard and worn out. Right. Pharisees were regular fasters. It was not uncommon for God's people to fast. And, and so it's in the context of this kind of religious culture that these people come up and ask Jesus this question. And it, and it makes sense. It makes sense for them to come up to Jesus, this latest and greatest sensation in the religious leader category, and ask him why in the world he and his followers don't practice fasting the same way others do. Among these three groups of disciples, they, they're kind of forecasting the famous uh, song from Sesame Street, right? One of these groups is not like the others. So how does Jesus answer? Well, he uses the wonderful image of a wedding feast. And he asks a rhetorical question there in verse 34. He says, can you make wedding guests fast? while the bridegroom is with them? He's saying that the purpose of fasting makes fasting inappropriate for his disciples at this time. Because they are not mourning. They are not repenting. They're partying. They're like guests at a wedding feast. And wedding feasts in those days were legit. They could go as long as one week full of dancing and eating and drinking and merriment. You didn't want to miss it. Not really the place you would go if you were in the middle of a fast. But Jesus says, that's why my disciples aren't fasting. I'm the bridegroom. And I'm with them. Jesus' words here remind us of one of the overarching themes of all of Scripture. See, throughout the Bible, we see this idea of God as the husband of his people. God pursuing his people in covenant relationship, in intimate love. 
even when they're unfaithful and have prostituted themselves with other gods. We read about this earlier with, when Eli read for us from Hosea, right? Their God is pictured as this husband who speaks tenderly to his wayward wife, his people, us, sinners, and beckons us back. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. The passage is describing God as our pursuing husband or some of the most beautiful and moving and comforting in all of the Bible. I wonder, Christian, have you caught yourself recently wondering if God really loves you? Sure, you've repented of your sin. You've placed your trust in Jesus, but you're still plagued by this doubt that says Jesus can't really love me personally. I know he loves the kind of people that are like me, but, but he knows too much about me to love me. If that's something you've thought, Christian, consider what it means for Jesus to call himself, this is his idea, to call himself your husband, your bridegroom. Well, I mean, what does a bridegroom do? He chooses his bride. He pursues his bride. He woos his bride. He sacrifices and lays down his own needs for his bride. He goes out of his way to prove undying love and affection for her. He takes her to himself. He weds her to himself in steadfast covenant love that is never broken because it's a love not based on her love for him, but his for her. Jesus here is saying he has come as the bridegroom to take God's people to himself. Christian, Jesus really does love you. He really does. The whole Bible is aimed at this end point where Jesus, the bridegroom, finally takes his people to himself, washed clean of their sin. Tim Keller says the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. And Lee read that earlier for us in Revelation 21, how the church pictured as the holy city, Jerusalem, is descending and being prepared as what? As a bride adorned for her husband. I, I like to think of the Bible as a sto- the story of the Bible as kind of like the wedding processional. Where the bride is being led down the aisle to the bridegroom. And throughout the Bible we see the bride prepared, redeemed, washed and finally presented at the altar to God, to his son, to their bridegroom who has given his life so she can be there with him. This picture of bridegroom is incredibly beautiful. And it makes sense that Jesus is saying, this is why my disciples are eating and drinking. They're not fasting. The bridegroom's here. Jesus has come here in Luke's gospel to give his life for God's people. That's what he hints there. He hints at there in verse 35. Do you see that? He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. He's speaking of his death. More broadly, I think he's speaking of his ascension and the time when he will be apart from his people before his return. 
So in a way, his, his current ministry here in chapter 5 of Luke is, is part of the process of him taking his bride to himself. Because in order to take his bride, to love them with a covenantal, steadfast, eternal love, he must die for them. But the day of his death has not yet come in our verses this morning. For now, he is still with his disciples. He's still teaching them about what must come, what he has to do. He's bringing the gospel, the kingdom of God to bear, but he knows what's coming. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you have been made for relationship, for love. And I think you know that. Now, human beings are not created for isolation. We are made in the image of a God who himself is a relational God who exists in three persons. But, friend, we're so glad you're here, but I think the, the way that you can see your need in this passage is that your sin, just like all of us, has broken your relationships. Relationships you have in your family, perhaps, or, or uh, in, with your friends. Most importantly, the Bible says your sin has broken your relationship with God. And tragically, there's no way for you to make that right. You, me, all of us have rebelled against God. And that's why the, the message of the gospel is so wonderful. It's that when we could not go to God, he came to us. That's what Jesus is doing here in Luke chapter 5. He has come, he has appeared, he has arrived to die on the cross for our sin. To bear God's judgment meant for us and take it on himself. And he can do that for you. If you have questions about that, we would love to talk with you more about what it means to have your judgment placed not on your own shoulders, but on the shoulders of your suffering Savior. You can be saved this morning. Go to him. And church, Jesus is saying here that now is not the time for his followers to fast. After all, he's right there with them. Now's the time for them to be feasting. But he also says that after he leaves, it's going to be time for some fasting. Church, where are we at? We're living in what Jesus calls in verse 35, the days to come, right? We're living away from the bridegroom. He's promised he's coming back, but it's been a long wait. We yearn for the day when he returns. Or do we? I think, I mean, I would place myself in this category, and I'm sure some of you would too. I think some of us wish we yearned a little bit more. Because we can easily get caught up in the comforts of this life, this world, and we forget the promise of this bridegroom, that promise he's coming to, to take us to himself. So for those of us who feel that way this morning, I wonder if we get an idea from this text of how to combat our laziness and our lack of yearning. See, church, one of the tools God has given us so we do grow in expectation and hunger for the day of our Savior's return is the discipline of fasting. I I wonder, Christian, have you ever desired to sort of pique your hunger for God? 
Have you found yourself living too much in this world and not thinking enough about the next? And, and for long periods of time, you've forgotten to pray and you've forgotten to meditate on the, the context in which you're living, which is a context of expectation and waiting because he's coming back. We sing and we talk and we pray about how his, his return should mean everything for our lives now. And yet so often we find ourselves forgetting to even hunger for that day. Well, if that's you, you might want to consider fasting as a tool to motivate you in your love for your Savior. Fasting doesn't earn God's love, but it does help us to see his love more clearly and want it more fervently. So some of you right now are experiencing the symptoms of a short fast. For some reason, Sunday mornings around 1030, 1130, especially in a quiet church room, stomachs begin to growl. I don't know why. It just happens. That's why some of you are sitting farther away, maybe, from others. You'll hear your stomach growl ferociously if you forego uh, a meal. Or, or a day, or you forget a few meals in a row. And as you hear that, what are you reminded of? You're reminded of your need for sustenance, of, of food to nourish and sustain your body, because your body's weak and it needs fuel if it's going to keep going. It's a, it's a gracious sound, right? It's a reminder. It's like a little notification popping up on your stomach saying, eat, please. Christian, isn't that what we want for our souls as well? We know we need nourishment. If you're a Christian, you in some way want to be reminded of your need to feast in God's word and in prayer, or else you'll forget about it and you won't do it. Or worse, you'll do it just to try to earn his favor because you've always done it that way. If that's you, church family, fasting is a gift for you in that struggle. Because when you hear your belly growling as you fast, you're reminded viscerally, literally at gut level, that you need God. That you're fasting because you want to need him more. And every time you hear that growl, you're reminded, Lord, I need you. I want you. I can't live without you. The the words in Romans chapter 8 are add to this picture when it talks about the creation what what were they doing waiting for the return of christ they're groaning all is not as it should be for those of us in christ we do groan we wait for restoration we long for the return of the bridegroom because in his embrace we know we will find everything we need his love is what we've been created to know If you have a hard time remembering that, Christian, try fasting. It's not for everybody. To be clear, it wouldn't be wise for everybody, right? So if you have some medical condition or you're pregnant or there's something else that would make fasting imprudent for you, don't fast. Jesus is not laying down a law here. But for most of us, I I would urge you to consider fasting regularly to stoke your hunger for God. As you do, ask God every time you feel a pang of physical hunger to give you more of a spiritual hunger for him. 
If you have more questions about that, I'd recommend the book uh, The Hunger, uh, Hunger for God by John Piper, where he, he uh, talks more about what fasting looks like. But think about it. Jesus isn't done teaching, though. So that's our first point. Jesus is the bridegroom for his people. In verses 36 to 39, we see our final point, and that is that Jesus brings something new for his people. Jesus brings something new for his people. So why don't Jesus' disciples fast like the disciples of other leaders do? Jesus says it's because I'm with them. And now he goes into some word pictures to show that he's with them and he's brought something new. This is the point he's making with those two illustrations in the next few verses. Luke calls them a parable. And the first has to do with clothing. Look in verse 36. Jesus says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. In Matthew and Mark's parallel accounts of this this story, uh, the new patch is seen as a, a piece of clothing that's not yet been shrunk, right? And so it doesn't make any sense to take kind of a fresh, unshrunk piece, put it on a, a old, shrunken piece of clothing, and then see the, 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 the piece shrink and tear the old cloth even worse. If, if that doesn't get the message across, Jesus gives us another illustration in verse 37, which is a little bit farther away from kind of our regular day-to-day experience. He says in verse 37, And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. So I I thought it was kind of gruesome when I read the descriptions. But basically what you took was a goat or a sheep, and you just used their body to hold your wine. Right? Cleaned them out, sewed them together, dumped in your wine. Glad we don't do that anymore. And at first, those skins, makes sense, would be fresh and flexible, right? But over time, they would become brittle and breakable. And so it made sense that you didn't put fresh wine that still needed to be fermented into old, brittle wineskins. Because what happens when wine ferments? Apparently it expands. And the stitches won't hold for long. So there's a very real threat when you put fresh wine and old wine skins of losing both the wine and the skin and having to clean up a mess. So Jesus says in verse 38, no, new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. So he uses these sort of Captain Obvious illustrations to the people of the day to show why his disciples are not fasting, to show what it is he has brought with his ministry. So what is that? What's he trying to say? What's he trying to communicate? He's communicating, most basically, that he's brought something that's new. And it doesn't fit with the old. It doesn't mix with the old. It won't work with the old. It's new wine. It's a new garment. It's revolutionary. See, the Jewish people had come to God under the old. The old covenant. The old covenant said you needed to obey God's law in order to walk with God in his favor. Sure, there were, there were kind of types and foreshadowings of grace and gospel throughout the old covenant, but most, basically, the old covenant was never meant to work. It was never meant to save. It was meant to point to something new. 
The Old Covenant had sacrifices of animals to put away sin and forgive God's people. The Old Covenant instituted men called prophets to speak on God's behalf. Men called priests to mediate between God and sinful people. Men called kings to show God's authority. But Jesus is saying, I've come now. I'm bringing something new. Jesus' covenant The new covenant, the new wine, writes God's law on our hearts, making us obedient, justifying us by Christ's work, not our work. So the old covenant may have used sacrifices to forgive sins. Jesus comes as the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, to put away sins forever. No day of atonement coming up on the calendar. The one day of atonement is done. The Old Covenant may have had this tabernacle and later the temple for God's people to meet with a holy God. But Jesus has come saying, I am Emmanuel. I'm God with you. The Old Covenant may have had prophets to speak God's word. What is Jesus? He is the word made flesh. The Old Covenant may have had priests to intercede between God and man. Jesus is both the perfect high priest. Read the book of Hebrews And he's the sacrifice that he lays down. The old covenant may have had kings. Jesus is the king of kings whose reign is eternal and never fades away. The Pharisees don't quite see it yet. Maybe they don't want to see it. The disciples of John are downright confused. But Jesus is showing slowly but surely that he is bringing a new covenant, a new thing. The old is past, the new has come, and the new covenant is so much better. See, the the iPhone was a revolutionary product. But over the past 13 years, it has proven to be a revolutionary product in great need of constant upgrades, tweaks, and troubleshooting. Not so with the covenant Jesus has brought. It's once and for all. It cannot be improved upon. In Hebrews chapter 8, we, we see the author of Hebrews quoting from Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant where the law is written on God's people's hearts. And then he says, in speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first covenant what? Obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jesus is showing here that he hasn't come as just another Jewish teacher. He hasn't come to just add on to what the Jews have already been teaching. He has come to fulfill the law they've taught and to bring newness of life. The law was never meant to bring and could never bring. I love it how the the late scholar Leon Morris puts it. He says, Jesus is not simply patching up Judaism. See what he did there? He is teaching something radically new. Jesus is fulfilling the old covenant. And the old covenant had at times pointed ahead to what he now is bringing. And it's totally new. And so with his word pictures, Jesus is saying, Pharisees, you want me to fast according to the old covenant? I just want you to know that, that it would be harmful to confuse what I'm bringing with what you have done. Because what I'm bringing is new. What I'm bringing is the bridegroom. What I'm bringing is myself. 
So he uses the clothing illustration to say new and old don't match. He uses the wineskin illustration to say mixing the new and the old is going to just distort and ruin both. I I spent time thinking about this, trying to make sure I understood what it meant. And I was helped by one scholar, Daryl Bach, and his insight on this idea. He says what, what Jesus is bringing is a new approach to God. He will make clear that there is continuity There is connection between what he offers and what God has promised throughout the Old Testament. But one should have no doubt that what Jesus offers is decidedly new and distinct. Jesus finishes there in verse 39 with a sort of odd verse that's not in Mark or Matthew. He says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Seems like he's kind of negating what he just said. But I think I'm persuaded that Jesus here is being a little sarcastic. Or at least he's adding, he's, he's kind of getting a little, little rebuke, a little challenge in there for the Pharisees. He's saying, you might have become so acquainted with the old, with the way things have always been, that you might just be content to just stay there. You'll resist the change I'm bringing, the newness I'm bringing. This is a warning for you. In church, this passage reminds us that the world, that human history, is going somewhere. Our existence and the existence of this universe is not cyclical, it's not repetitive, it's not the circle of life, it's linear. It's a line. It has a beginning and an end. And the story that we're all a part of is going somewhere. It's going to wrap up at some point. And it's important we realize where we are in that story so we don't become confused like the Pharisees. We're under the new covenant, church. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Remember what he calls us? New creations? But we're not yet at the end of the story, are we? We're awaiting the moment of complete restoration. Complete consummation of God's plan. We're waiting for what Lee read for us earlier from Revelation 21. Because in that day, when the church is brought to her bridegroom and the new heavens and the new earth are prepared, in that day, when all wrongs have been made right, we read that God will dwell with us. Well, you read for us earlier in Revelation. I'm going to read some of it again. It says, they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. What did the fasting do? Fasting was about mourning. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Church, Jesus came the first time to die 
so he could bring this kind of new covenant to us. A covenant with such amazing promises. Promises that one day pain and suffering and COVID-19 and tears will be gone. They will be called the former things. Wouldn't that be a glorious day? When pain and suffering will be called old. And God will be making all things new. So Christian, perhaps you're suffering this morning. I don't know what that suffering entails. But as, a, as Christians, most of us experience suffering pretty regularly as part of our becoming more like Jesus. And this passage doesn't diminish your suffering, but it does put it into a context. You're in a story and you're going somewhere. And so as you suffer, as you wait, God is putting these things into your life for a reason, part of which is for you to yearn when the pain is too hard, when the suffering is too terrible, for you to yearn for the day when that pain and that suffering will be a distant memory, even if that. We all do this. We hunger, we We fast because when the bridegroom returns, there's not going to be any more need for hunger and fasting. There will be no more hunger, no more tears. He will be with his bride forever. Until then, we're like the guests at the wedding, awaiting the arrival of the groom. Yeah, there might be tastes of the joy of the new covenant along the way. You know, the cocktail hour and the hors d'oeuvres kind of stoke our hunger Church, the feast is coming. It's going to come when the bridegroom comes, when he returns and takes us to himself. So Christian, are you living in light of that promised future? Are you living like a wedding guest, waiting for the real deal? Are you living like Jesus, your bridegroom is coming back? Are you preparing yourself for his return? Because on that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. We're going to sing that heavenly anthem in a few moments. But first, let's pray. And ask the Lord to bring his truth to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you have come to make all things new because you know we need that. We worship you. We give glory to you this morning from hearts that still have mixed motives and struggles with sin, but have made, been made justified and righteous by the blood of Christ. But even as we sing, Lord, we hunger for more. We hunger for your presence with us. So I pray for those in our church family who feel sort of lethargic. Who would have to think a long ways back to see a time when they yearned for heaven. Lord, did you have mercy on them? even as we sing this song and bring back that hunger. Maybe if it's just a little taste, 
I pray for those in our church family who have considered from this text the godly discipline of fasting, maybe even this coming week. Lord, I know the mistakes I've made with this discipline. Lord, you protect us from fasting out of a sense of duty or obligation because we know that will just make us miserable Christians. But help us to fast because we're looking for greater delights, greater tastes than food could ever give us. Help us to fast because we know that you came and you fasted while you were tempted in the wilderness and you defeated our sin so that we will have the joys forevermore. Lord, while we wait for you as the wedding guests, we pray for our bridegroom that you would come quickly, that you would take us to yourself. For in you there will be fullness of joy. All glory be to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.